This educational series is supported by independent educational grants from the following companies. Amgen, Astellas, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genomic Health, Merck, Pfizer Incorporated, Sanofi Genzyme, and Eurogen Pharma. Based on the documented need for additional education in prostate cancer, bladder cancer, and renal cell carcinoma, the AUA is launching a series of podcasts, the AUA Expert Exchange Podcast, discussions about managing GU cancer. These activities are designed to increase the clinician's competency in the application of new and emerging treatment options, including their mechanisms of actions and associated side effects. The following activity is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn how to claim CME credits for your participation in this activity, or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auau.auanet.org. Hi, this is Vic Nitty, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, and I'd like to welcome you to another Office of Education podcast. This is another in our series of the AUA Expert Exchange podcast, discussion about managing GU cancer. And today's topic is genetic testing in prostate cancer. It is my pleasure to welcome my co-host, Dr. Brian Chuck. Brian is Associate Professor and Director of the Kidney Cancer Program and the GU Cancer Genetics Clinic at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks, Vic. Great to be here. Okay. I just want to go over some learning objectives, and then we'll get right into this very important topic of genetic testing. So our learning objectives today are to state the criteria for genetic testing for prostate cancer patients, the gene panels available, and options for testing in these men. Number two is to describe the results of genetic testing and relay this information to patients in order to facilitate shared decision-making based on the test results. And third is to explain the importance of testing for germline mutations and their implications for novel therapies such as PARP inhibitors. So Brian, my first question to you is how common are genetic forms of prostate cancer? A great question, Vic. So this was once thought to be very rare, and it was uh, thought to account for a small minority of prostate cancer. Uh, however, the more we've learned about uh, genetic uh, forms of prostate cancer, we now think about 5% of localized prostate cancer may be related to a strong genetic predisposition due to a germline alteration, and maybe as high as 12 to 15% of men with metastatic prostate cancer may have a germline uh, alteration. So now if, if one has a germline alteration, does this have implications in how we might treat patients or what their outcomes might be? Yes. Yeah, so if we have a patient who has prostate cancer and is found to have a germline alteration in a gene such as BRCA1, 2, or ATM, 
those patients, uh, it would be very concerning to follow some of those patients with active surveillance. Uh, we do know that those patients have a very high rate of upgrading uh, when they're followed. As many as 60% of patients at 10 years uh, will be upgraded based on retrospective analyses. Uh, patients with BRCA2 prostate cancer have uh, a worse outcome, even when controlling for things such as stage or grade or PSA. So would that even potentially apply to what we call, you know, the low risk patient, the, the Gleason 3 plus 3 patient who has a, a, a genetic abnormality or, or, or a BRCA gene? Um, is that somebody who may not be a candidate for active surveillance? Yeah, or so right might now, think otherwise about active surveillance. So right now, if a patient who has very low risk or low risk prostate cancer, if we knew they had an alteration such as BRCA2, it would be very concerning that uh, you would be worried that potentially we were not having a complete uh, understanding of their uh, disease burden. So I guess if this is an issue, uh, the next question is how does one screen for hereditary prostate cancer or, or gene alterations? So in the past, it would be very few patients were candidates for genetic evaluation. We did not understand how to uh, fully uh, uh, risk stratify or test patients. We thought these were very rare uh, um, conditions. Uh, but now we have a lot of patients who have uh, or are candidates for prostate cancer germline evaluation. Uh, and a lot of that depends on their overall risk. Uh, we understand their, uh, basically their Gleason score, their PSA, uh, and their disease stage. We also try to understand their family history, uh, because if they have a strong family history of breast or ovarian cancer or pancreatic cancer in one uh, close degree relative, you know, that is a concerning, uh, concerning family history. So we have to put, we put all that together and we try to see if someone could be a candidate for evaluation their prostate cancer. Brian, this, this is a little, I'm sorry, this is a little bit of a different question, but what about the person who has that family history and does not have a diagnosis of prostate cancer? Uh, family history of, let's say, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer in uh, a parent or, uh, or sibling, um, and that patient, although they don't have a history of prostate cancer, let's say their PSA is normal, would you would it be encouraged for that person to be tested? So a patient who doesn't have prostate cancer, but they have very concerning family history, uh, we definitely want to have them uh, considered. Uh, we obviously, when a patient comes in for a, a genetic evaluation, uh, we call this genetic risk assessment. Uh, we take a three-generation pedigree to understand um, uh, their siblings, their uh, parents, or potentially their grandparents, and to map out their whole entire history of things like uh, uh, um, ovarian cancer, pancreatic cancer, a melanoma, breast cancer history, or other types of cancers. And when patients have a strong enough risk, uh, then we consider doing a germline evaluation. For unaffected individuals, it's always they have a strong family history. It's always best to consider testing their 
their at-risk relatives. So if someone had uh, their mother had breast cancer at age 44, maybe they'd be the most appropriate person to undergo evaluation. But in the absence of maybe a relative who could be tested, uh, it's uh, perfectly reasonable to uh, have a patient get genetic risk assessment um, uh, with, uh, with a strong ha family history. Okay, so I'm going to ask one more question in the non-prostate cancer patient, and that is if a man is found to be genetically at risk, let's say has a BRCA gene, po positive for a BRCA gene, and is has been screened for prostate cancer and has a normal PSA, um, you know, let's say it's 1 or 1.2, uh, and the patients in their 60s, would that patient's follow-up be any different uh, than a patient who did not have any genetic testing? You know, so would they get PSAs more often or something like that? Another great question. So everything we know right now about uh, patients who have a germline alteration for things like BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, et cetera, there is significantly increased risk of developing prostate cancer. It might be double to potentially five times higher depending on the individual gene. Things like BRCA2, they have a much higher risk of developing a lethal prostate cancer. Right now, in a patient who may have genetic risk, uh, we consider having patients get screened with PSA, digital rectal exam. Potentially, there's some discrepancy between the prostate cancer NCCN guidelines or the breast ovarian cancer guidelines, but anywhere between age 40 to 45 is reasonable to begin the initial screening. Um, again, a yearly a PSA and a DRE, and uh, the thresholds are different. Whereas in a patient who is um, genetically at risk, they might be 40 years of age, if they have a PSA of maybe 1.6, we would be concerned. So the thresholds and what is no such thing as a normal PSA in in any patient because patients still are at risk. But the uh, about uh, anyone less than 50 PSA of 1.5 is concerning 50 to uh, 60. We get worried about a PSA around two and 60 to 70, probably a PSA at 2.5. And when we have those findings, we consider doing things like an MRI. We consider a prostate uh, biopsy or consider other things like uh, uh, some of these additional tests like 4K uh, or um, prostate health index. Brian, what exactly does genetic counseling consist of? So, so genetic testing is a very hot area right now because we only have 35 to 4,000 genetic counselors in the United States. And the, there's been an explosion in who needs to be tested or evaluated in every field you know, breast cancer, pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer, kidney cancer, their uh, guidelines continue to expand that we can't meet this demand. Uh, so a lot of urologists or medical oncologists have uh, taken this and, and begun doing the evaluation themselves and sending off tests. You really need to understand what you're testing for uh, and understand uh, uh, how to uh, really counsel a patient, how to take a three-generation pedigree. Uh, we have patients who sometimes are not really good candidates for um, for genetic evaluation, and sometimes these tests are ordered. Uh, if the clinician is looking at the results, uh, sometimes they may misinterpret it. 
Uh, so when a patient undergoes genetic counseling, again, we do a comprehensive evaluation. Uh, genetic counselors are really trained to do this or clinicians who are really living in the space. It's acceptable, but we need to discuss things such as the Genetic Information Non-Discriminatory Act, how things like life insurance could be affected, the, um, the implications to family members who may be at risk, and uh, potentially some of the outcomes on testing, such as what we call a negative result, meaning your genetic evaluation of the genes tested have no alterations, positive or likely pathogenic, meaning that a gene tested has a alteration which is predicted to be damaging for that gene. But about five to 25% of patients, depending on the panel, which is sele selected, they may have a variant which is different than the reference database. So let's say you get tested for, let's say ATM, and you have a variant, but it's not known to be associated with a disease. We call that a variant of unknown significance, meaning it is different, but we don't think different in a bad way. So that is uh, uh, something which does provide some anxiety for some patients. Sometimes they get reclassified down the road five, 10 years later. So really you need someone who understands what all this means. And uh, we have uh, a lot of genetic counselors uh, or clinicians who are living in the space who are a uh, good resource. Brian, how is testing now performed? So now we have the ability to do a, a germline evaluation, testing a large panel of genes um, all at once. So in the old days, we would send a gene and wait for it to come back. And if it was negative, then send another gene to be tested. Now we have what's called a shotgun approach. When we have next generation sequencing, we can test for as many as 84 genes now are offered in some panels from some companies. Um, and it, you, can be, you can tailor some of these panels based on the person's family risk. If someone was just tested for prostate cancer, there's a small panel of 10 to 15 genes. But let's say you had also a, that patient who had a history of a kidney cancer, history of um, essentially several sarcomas, you might broaden that panel uh, to include a much, much wider um, um, uh, a catalog of genes that could uh, be implicated in a hereditary cancer syndrome. So what, what are some of the possible findings uh, when we test for hereditary prostate cancer? So generally, when we test patients who just have prostate cancer risk, we would only include a panel with some genes such as BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, HALB2, HOXB13, some of the mismatch repair genes. Um, and when we get these back, if we have someone who has a known alteration, which is uh, clearly damaging and associated with the disease, we would call that a pathogenic alteration which would make a diagnosis that that patient had a genetic defect in that gene. Again, if we have a patient who tests completely negative, it's reassuring that they don't have a, uh, a, a genetic alteration in the genes which are tested, but it doesn't exclude that there may be an alteration which we just haven't learned about yet that may be increasing the risk of prostate cancer or other cancers. Now, what about implications for family members? Uh, patient tests positive for one of these uh, genes. Um, how does that affect their family members or what, what you or they tell their family members? So any patient who tests positive, you know, if it's their wife, 
you know, if uh, a husband would not have obviously put their wife at risk, but if a, if a parent had children and we tested positive, there'd be a 50% chance of that genetic alteration to be passed uh, to a child. Similar with siblings, if you are, if you have a brother or a sister, assuming that it is uh, inherited from the same mother or father, uh, there would be a 50% chance that they would be affected as well. When we have a patient who tests positive uh, for a pathogenic alteration of one of these genes, we recommend downstream testing. We call this cascade testing, which an at-risk family member would get evaluated as well, and they could begin a screening um, uh, and genetic uh, uh, testing as, to see if they are similarly at risk. This has often saved lives. We've had patients who someone gets a cancer and then we screen them and are, they find that they have an alteration. They reach out to their first or second cousin and they, they come in and they test positive. We screen them and sometimes we find cancer in them, which is at a treatable stage. All right. Well, again, now, again, we have a patient who has been found to have uh, a genetic variant. Um, how is the information relevant to how that patient will, will be treated or the options of, that that patient will be given? Yeah, so in a patient who has prostate cancer, you know, we do know that some of the genes such as HOXP13, NBN, those may not really increase the risk of aggressive prostate cancer. Uh, BRCA2 clearly increases the risk of really an aggressive lethal variant of prostate cancer. BRCA1 or ATM variants, potentially there's some data that they may be associated with, you know, higher, um, higher stage or grade, but the jury is still out there. But we're talking about um, when patients eventually, if they develop metastatic disease, uh, depending on the genetic variant, we may be able to know more about maybe an Achilles heel that the tumor may have that we potentially would offer the patients additional systemic therapy choices if they were to uh, develop castrate-resistant metastatic prostate cancer. Are, um, you know, with, with so many of the new treatments, uh, immunotherapies, PARP inhibitors, et cetera, are any of these um, treatments, are patients uh, more likely to respond to any of these treatments if they have a genetic form of prostate cancer? So pembrolizumab is a PD-1 uh, uh, inhibitor, which is um, approved for patients who have tumors with mismatch um, repair deficiency. So we have some patients who have Lynch syndrome, uh, and they uh, get, obviously, other cancers, such as colorectal cancer. Maybe women get endometrial cancer. Men are at higher risk of prostate cancer. If they have a mismatch repair deficient tumor, Generally, these tumors have lots of mutations, and they have potentially a better response uh, of immunotherapy with that PD-1 uh, inhibitor therapy. Now, the patients who have the BRCA1 or BRCA2 or maybe also ATM, they have tumors which have DNA repair defects in what's called the homologous double-strand repair pathway. And those patients may have uh, sensitivity to a class of drugs known as PARP inhibitors, and the rationale is, uh, it's called synthetic lethality, where you have a defect in one pathway, and if you damage a second pathway, there's just too much damage to the cell, and the cells die. So it's a way of exploiting cells which are already deficient in how they repair their DNA, 
And if you damage their DNA or prevent repair further with a drug called a PARP inhibitor, it potentially is too much for the cells and you can have pretty impressive responses seen in patients who have castrate-resistant prostate cancer uh, who have these genetic defects. You know, Brian, one thing that you mentioned earlier is that there, or, or I got the impression that, the, that there aren't enough genetic counselors. Um, is anything being done to address that? So there are alternative genetic assessment uh, methods. In some countries, they have a, uh, a trained kind of coordinator that can initiate the testing or counseling. A lot of centers have begun to use what's called video counseling, where people can watch a video and have all the risks and benefits and outcomes discussed to them. There's also some centers that have had group counseling where many patients come together. There are some parts of the country where there may not be genetic counselors available. So there's also things called remote or telegenetic counseling. You can be in a rural uh, uh, state and you could have someone on the other end of the phone or video chat with you, and they can do the counseling remotely to expand access for all. Now, as genetic testing has become more mainstream, have you seen an increased demand at UCLA for genetic testing and or genetic counseling? Yeah, so this is obviously, uh, in the past two years, it's been an explosion. We were rarely testing individuals uh, with prostate cancer. Now, when we, uh, each year, we need to test you know, 100 to 200 men with advanced uh, prostate cancer. So it's been a really difficult um, uh, situation to meet this increased demand. And our program, we've uh, outsourced with uh, telegenetics because the wait time to see a counselor in-house is increasing and increasing. And sometimes it's easier to just have uh, this outsource to a remote counselor or to have patients potentially watch the counseling video themselves. Um, and there are several companies which offer a very comprehensive seven minute to 10 minute video that can help initially go through some of the um, uh, discussion about uh, the risk and benefits and expectations with uh, testing. Yeah, you know, I was going to ask what your advice would be for the urologist who um, may, you know, maybe in a non-academic environment, uh, perhaps not even near an academic environment, um, who has a patient with prostate cancer and that patient is interested in, uh, in genetic testing. What advice do you have for that urologist? So this is a very difficult situation right now. So I would first have them uh, look and see which genetic counselors are available in their area, okay, and see if they can make a referral. Um, there are some courses or uh, uh, kind of training programs. One, our colleagues at City of Hope have a 14-week intensive course where if someone wanted to learn to do this themselves, they could learn to do it themselves. But again, there are some challenges and medically, legally, it's something I don't know if people feel comfortable doing this. Um, and then there are some companies that offer remote testing uh, and remote counseling, companies uh, that uh, have genetic counselors available uh, to do this remotely would be a, a great option for, uh, for a, a urologist or medical oncologist who wanted to incorporate this into their practice. Yeah, and I would suspect that we'll probably see 
<clears throat> more demand for these kind of services and more um, urologists who have not been uh, doing genetic testing to be getting more and more involved in this as it does, uh, you know, it, it, it does seem to offer uh, some additional information and some additional hope for many of our patients with prostate cancer and, and for that matter, patients with other uh, forms of cancer, even non-urological uh, types of cancers, I'm sure, uh, that will probably see similar uh, correlations as time goes on and, and as we learn more and more about uh, what has become a, a, a fascinating part of medicine and, uh, um, you know, again, part of probably will become part of what we see more as precision medicine in the future where every patient uh, has the potential to get treated differently based upon um, uh, some of their genetic makeup. Exactly. This is something which is an emerging area. It's challenging to kind of meet this demand, but we're going to have to figure out creative ways to do so, but it's an exciting time in medicine. There's obviously precision treatments available kind of uh, based on the genetic uh, risk. And biology is destiny. And if we understand the tumor's biology, we can know how to treat it. We can uh, uh, hopefully have better outcomes. Well, Brian, thank you so much. This was uh, really a terrific overview, I think, of genetic testing in prostate cancer, where it fits in. Um, how to do it and what implications uh, it may have for our patients. So uh, again, uh, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Uh, I, so also, I also want to thank our audience as always for listening and uh, for more information, uh, please feel free to contact auanet.org uh, slash uh, university. Thank you.